Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the window. This is Dr. I, and I have my esteemed colleague, Dr. Joe, on the other line. Now, that wasn't nice. Dr. Iris Cooper. Good morning, Wayne Dandridge in our studio. He's, he's on his best behavior today, and I've, I've counseled him. But welcome, everyone. Um, I want to start off the show by talking about um, how I grew up just briefly. My family was the first black family in the neighborhood in Evansville, Indiana, on the street. And we were surrounded by white people. And our neighbors next door were very, very nice to us. Um, my school was uh, partially integrated. But for some reason, Iris Cooper was referred to as that colored girl. And I was like, what color am I? And I heard it frequently that we were colored. And of course, as a child, you're thinking about a coloring book. So I can be green or purple or whatever. But in any event, I grew up with a distaste for that description. And believe it or not, it still persists today. We have two guests on the show today that also fall into that bucket called colored people. And it's insulting because we pledge an allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And that means colored people too. So, Dr. Joe, if you would introduce our first guest, I would really appreciate it. Well, I'm going to flip the script just a bit. Instead of talking about colored people, I'm going to talk about people of color. That Thank you. liberty and justice for all for years has implied to some people that we are in a melting pot where we all morph into one, the American people. But instead, let's think of ourselves as a salad bowl in which we all are part of the mix. We get to maintain our individuality, but we're all part of what brings a distinct flavor to our country. I like that. We are people of various hues and color. And so I am honored to talk to our first guest this morning, Dr. Elena Follis from The Ohio State University. She teaches Latin American literature and Spanish for heritage learners at The Ohio State University, and she has a whole range of articles that explore Latina voices through oral history and identity, and this is sounding kind of familiar to my culture, my African-American culture, and how we storytell. So in addition to talking more to Dr. Folas about what it is we should know about the Hispanic culture, Latina culture, I'm also going to talk to her about similarities and differences with other people of culture. So, Dr. Fullis, welcome to the window. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm going to start with an apology. So oftentimes when people approach me as an African-American and say, gee, tell me what black people think and what black people do, <laughs> I remind them gently that we are all 
different as well as being similar. And I am not the voice of everyone. As I've mm-hmm. grown through the years, I approach those kinds of questions, though, with a bit more grace and say, well, gee, at least they're asking. At least mm-hmm. they'd like to learn more. And dialogue is what we're about on the window. And dialogue, I think, will help us all just get along and understand each other better. So my apologies in advance for starting off with a series of questions that assume that you speak for everyone in your culture. Mm-hmm. And let's just start sure. with the basics. When we use the terms that I just threw out there, Hispanic, Latina, Latino, Latinx, I've heard, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes those terms are used uh, interchangeably. Uh, so people refer to Hispanic people or Latinx people or Latino people. Uh, those terms uh, began, you know, in the in the 70s uh, where... Um, you know, the, the term, the first term that was popular was the term Hispanic to refer to people that either were Spanish speakers or were uh, uh, from Latin America. Some of the differences between the terms, uh, so, the, you know, the term Latino or Latinx um, has a similar uh, meaning, right? So people from Latin America, uh, Spanish speakers sometimes, right? Uh, so the term Hispanic, though, um, it, it, it also includes people from Spain. Um, in, so uh, people that speak Spanish or the Spanish-speaking world, um, which includes Spain. But um, it excludes people from Latin America that are not Spanish speakers. So, for example, Brazilians, right? Uh, they speak Portuguese. Uh, so the term Latinx or Latino, uh, Latina, it, um, excludes people from Spain, and it, it refers to, uh, to people from Latin America. So uh, this would include um, Brazilians. Um, so there are some differences. People still use them inter- interchangeably. Um, more and more, um, we uh, hear the term Latino or Latinx uh, uh, gaining popularity, especially the term Latinx. And the term Latinx, uh, you know, over the past, uh, especially over the past uh, five years, has gained popularity as a term that is um, uh, gender inclusive. Um, so, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the term Latina and Latino, they're, they're gender, right? Latina if you're female, Latino if you're male. Um, so the term Latinx refers um, is used to include, um, you know, people that are perhaps non-binary. Um, another thing that um, that term um, does is that it signals uh, maybe um, an uh, uh, an understanding of uh, or a question, I guess, of as to who um, is this group, right, Latinx people, uh, which includes indi- people from indigenous descent, people from uh, who are Afro-descendants within the Latinx community. Um, so that also, you know, in a way, it's a, it's a term that is more um, complete. Um, uh, but this term, you know, change all the time. Um, and uh, so a, a newer term, I guess, that we're... Um, sort of using is the term Latina. So instead of the X at the end, we uh, put a E. And that's merely uh, because in Spanish, the term Latinx is really not pronounceable. Um, And instead, Mm -hmm. the term Latine um, is a little bit more 
pronounceable for Spanish speakers. Um, so, you know, terms, uh, uh, they're meant to um, sort of give us a glimpse of who this group is, um, and, and it has a purpose, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good way to begin the conversation about this particular group, um, but it's certainly not, um, uh, it doesn't tell us the whole story, right? Uh, to be Latino, Latina, or Latinx, uh, can be many things, right? It, can, it, it doesn't tell you where I'm from. It doesn't tell you my immigration status. It doesn't tell you my race, um, my socioeconomic status, right? It, it, so it's, it's incomplete in some ways, right? So thank you for that explanation. And, and let's talk about some of the factors that you just talked about. So as I ask you a few questions, again, please correct me in terms of the terminology I'm going to use. So mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you, for example, about the fact that we as African Americans were brought to the United States for the most part in chains. And I'm going mm-hmm. to ask you what's led to the historical migration of, now should I say Hispanics or Latinos mm-hmm. to the United States, which would be the correct uh, way. Yeah, Latinx people would be uh, maybe a better term for the purpose of Latinx. of uh, okay. uh-huh, of this interview. Um, uh, and so the you know uh, people from uh, Latino people, Latinx people have different historical backgrounds, right? So we have um, uh, the southwestern part of the U.S. Uh, has. Um, a large number of Mexican or Mexican American people that um, uh, were not necessarily, you know, they were not uh, immigrants, right? Uh, they became part of the U.S. US um, territory after the, uh, at the end of the Mexican American War in, in, um, or in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which happened in um, 1848. And, and so those, States or that territory became part of the U.S. Right, so the people that lived there, which were primarily Mexicans at that time, um, uh, became part of the U.S. Right, so became sort of Americans or U.S. citizens at that point. Um, and that, that's complicated, right? Because uh, even though the the Mexican Americans uh, at that time or the Mexicans that became part of the U.S. at that time were U.S. citizen. Um, they didn't really enjoy all of the rights of U.S. citizens, right? Um, so there's that history, right? And then we have uh, Puerto Ricans that also became um, sort of incorporated into um, into the U.S. Um, in um, after the Jones Act in 1902, I believe, or 1906. I I, I can't remember exactly the date, but um, so they are U.S. citizens, right? Um, in um, um, so that, you know, there's that history of Puerto Ricans. And then you do have immigrants, but you have uh, Cubans that, uh, you know, came as refugees. Uh, you have um, just people migrating from different parts of Latin America, Mexico, Central America, um, etc. Right. And uh, like lately, we have a lot of people from um, Venezuela that are that have been coming uh, to the U.S. So, so there is this mix, right, history of, of immigration, but also history of um, colonization, you know, within within the U.S., right? We, uh, especially in the case of 
um, the territories that were lost, you know, after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And so the people that uh, were in those uh, territories or in, in those states, um, uh, sort of, you know, there's a saying that says that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, um, to really talk about their experiences, right, of becoming uh, U.S. citizens um, just by way of um, geography, right, that, that that border changed or that border moved. Um, so you have, um, you have uh, Latinos or uh, Latino people that have been here for many generations, right? Some are U.S. born. Um, you do have um, uh, immigrants like myself. I came to the U.S. in 1992. Um, and, and then we come from different, from different areas, right? And as we come into the U.S., we also, um, you know, some, some of us that have been, uh, you know, that are first, second, uh, third generation have been, you know, um, uh, married people from maybe other ethnicities. And so it is, a, it, it is a complex group, right? And we also have different, um, maybe beliefs in terms of religion, uh, in terms of political views. Um, uh, we also occupy, uh, you know, different professions. Um, sometimes uh, there is this overwhelming um, view, right, that uh, Latinx peoples are, um, so first of all, that, that we're all immigrants, which is not true, um, that... Um, they're all Latinx people speak Spanish, and that is also not true. Some, um, sadly, right, because of migration, because of different the places where they grew up, or just access to the Spanish language, have lost um, sort of that part of you know their heritage. Um, some of us are bilingual. Um, some of them, some of us, depending on how um, long we've been in the U.S., might not speak English, right? Uh, so there's diversity in language. There is diversity in race. Uh, certain um, countries uh, have a stronger, um, maybe um, Afro-descendant uh, community. And in, in, so in places like Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, some uh, countries in Central America like Honduras, um, Panama, right, they have a, a stronger um, Afro-descendant um community so so there is a mix right in race and ethnicity uh language immigration status uh and experiences so um so really uh the term some many times is incomplete so dr Fuller, if, if my math is correct you've been in the united states then about 20 to 30 Almost years 30 years where did yeah. you come mm -hmm. from where did i come from is that what you said yeah Mm -hmm. um, I, grew up in, uh -huh, I grew up in a town called Matamoros, Tamaulipas, which is a border town right across from uh, Brownsville, Texas. So I grew up in Mexico, uh, and I moved, yeah, I moved here almost 30 years ago. I can't believe it. <laughs> it seems like a very long what time What brought ago. you here to the United States? 
what brought me. So initially, I thought, well, I'm just going to be, you know, coming to the U.S. and learning English and going back. I had no intention of staying, you know, in here in this in this area. So I first went to California for a couple of months. My my dad lived there. And um, and then I moved to Ohio because I have a half sister that lives here. And I, you know, and so I started learning English and then I, I started going to the community college here and I just kind of stayed, you know, I, I saw this place as the place where I could um, continue my education. And uh, and then I fell in love with somebody from Ohio. And so I stayed here. Um, and I've moved away from a, from Ohio a couple of times. Uh, we've lived in Texas and Arkansas. I lived in Oklahoma, and then um, Ohio keeps pulling us back here. So here we are again. <laughs> well, the American dream. You, you got educated. Right. You fell in love. You've moved around. Let me talk about you mentioned history. In fact, you walked us through a brief history, and everything we're going to talk about is going to be condensed in a very short time frame, so we're just mm-hmm. not going to do this topic justice. But African-Americans and, and, and Latina people represent arguably the largest and most powerful minority groups in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I say mm-hmm. arguably because power, for example, is a relative term. Some would argue that right. no minority groups have power. But can you compare for us, based on your perspective, can you mm-hmm. compare and contrast the similarities and differences between, let's start with the economic and social status of mm-hmm. your people, if you will, and my people? Mm-hmm. I, I do think that we share a similar um, economic and social, social um, status in the U.S. as a minority group. Um, so there are, you know, there, there is a history of uh, oppression that sadly we share, uh, of uh, lack of resources, access, you know, uh, in, in all areas, in education and health and um, just economic development, right, um, as, a, as a group. Um, and so um, uh, I have to say that that sort of historically that has been the case. But I also want to say that um, in, the pa- um, in the past, I, um, I want to say maybe two decades, uh, specific, especially in the past decade, right, especially with the, the, the new census data that is coming out, like we not only have we seen the growth in population, but also there is um, growth in our um, uh, attendance to college, for example, right? There's more Latinos coming to college. And I say this um, with a little, you know, I, I am very positive and hopeful about that, but I also want to say that we still have, um, a lot of struggles, right, to, to getting into college, to, um, to graduating our students. Um, so although we have a higher number coming to, you know, to college, which leads to higher, you know, uh, uh, social mobility, you know, with, with, a, with a college degree um, or, um, you know, some sort of prep, like uh, close, uh, secondary preparation, right? Professional preparation um, leads to just a better economic out, outlook in life. Um, 
we do struggle still to make sure that our students are served the, in the best way that they need to be served at our, at our, at our institutions. Um, I also want to say that um, there is also a, an increase on um, uh, focusing on different Latinx communities across, um, you know, the U.S. Um, and I can speak specifically for Ohio, how much we are providing opportunities for small businesses. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, small uh, Latino businesses uh, popping up. And, and we have seen an increase of women uh, as entrepreneurs. And so that's exciting, right? So we see, um, you know, some, some growth in that area. And, and I think uh, the, the black community has a similar uh, pattern in that way, right? There, 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 have some, there, there have been some difficulties. There have been some um, sort of uh, lack of resources, educational attainment, lack of mentors. Um, so I see a lot of, you know, similar uh, struggles that we've had as, as, as communities, Um and, uh, but I also see this emphasis, right, or this push for making sure that our black students are going to college, are graduating, are networking so that they have professional uh, leads, right, after college. Um, so, so that brings me hope. Um, and then you, you asked something about how is it that we're, you know, the most powerful minorities and and power, like you said, is a, is a tricky term, right? But one of the things that I do see is this uh, need for these two communities to come together um, to fight for change. And I think um, sometimes we work in silos, right? We work individually. Um, we we, uh, we uh, don't see some of the commonalities that we have and how much stronger we could be if we actually work together, right? Uh, black and brown communities Paul, that working note of together. Hope, if I may for a moment, that note of hope is a great one for us to pause quickly, take a break, and come back and talk to you about on the window. Okay. We are back on the window, Dr. Joe and Dr. I, and we're with Dr. Elena Folis of The Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. In addition to what she's already talked to us about in terms of her credentials and what she teaches at the university related to Latin American literature and Spanish for heritage learners, she's also host and producer for the podcast Latino Stories and she's commissioner for the Ohio Latina Affairs Commission, and she's just given us a very brief but very thorough overview of our topic for today, people of color in the United States, and she's talked to us about the Latino population. Historically, what has brought the population here as a group, although we caution everyone just tuning in, that we know that not everyone thinks and acts the same because they are part of a group. But just before the break, Dr. Folis, you talked to us about African-Americans 
and Latinos and the possibilities for us to perhaps come together a bit more to deal mm-hmm. with common social and cultural and economic issues in this country. Can you tell us more about what you have in mind for those types of possibilities? Um, I think, that, you know, there we are um, experiencing, experiencing similar maybe issues, right, in, 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 in relation to safety uh, of our communities, of our, of our young people, um, um, educational opportunities, right, um, economic access. And, and I think uh, there is a way for us to come together to, to fight for that, right, to, um, to see how we can both, both groups can come together and work towards, you know, empowering both communities that have similar struggles, right, instead of working um, separately. And I want to give you an example of a few years ago, I went to a conference. Um, uh, it was an oral history conference. And, and uh, this, two, uh, this researcher or a scholar had been interviewing uh, communities um, of color, the people of color in this particular neighborhood uh, in L.A., and they were very close to each other and, uh, you know, just like a couple streets, you know, a difference. But one, um, you know, this particular street was primarily um, Latinx. And then this other, uh, you know, a couple streets down um, from that neighborhood, uh, it was a primarily black community. And they interviewed them about um, sort of how police brutality, you know, their experiences with, um, you know, police brutality and violence and and things like that. And so they interviewed the mothers and the stories were so similar, yet they hadn't come to this two communities that lived very close to each other that had very similar, you know, sort of negative uh, experiences with um, dealing with police and police brutality, um, they had, um, you know, done work on their own communities to try to, you know, address that, um, that issue, but they hadn't come together as, a, as, you know, as both communities demanding change, right, and protection for their, uh, this were primarily uh, young men that were being, you know, um, uh, uh, stereotypes, you know, uh, brutalized, et cetera. Um, and so through this um, sort of work, right, that this research did, they were able to come together and sort of offer a public forum about the experiences that they had, right? And that to me is eye-opening, right, that um, sometimes the communities are just next door to us and we don't realize how much in common we have. And, and I gave you maybe not as an experience that is, you know, that is as that is positive, right? Um, that's a concern to our communities, and and that's very valid. That's a valid concern. Uh, but we also can share um, other um, experiences that are very similar. I find that uh, black the black community and the Latinx community have very similar family values, um and so that already i think creates a type of kinship right with this uh with this two communities um aside from some of the issues that you know that target us or that affect us um in more serious ways but but yeah i mean building a community coming together fighting for for um issues that we both communities are experiencing uh there is power in that for sure 
And unfortunately, we're going to need to wind down our conversation sure. with you. But what you're saying, I think, ties right into one of my concerns, that if our communities do divulge it all, it's probably along the lines of trying to maneuver this very complicated political landscape that we're in right now in terms of elected officials, some of the key buzzwords that are used for your community, such as socialism, which is my understanding right. is correct. It's kind of a lightning rod, just as maybe Black Lives Matter is for our community. And so I want to thank you once again for spending just a brief time with us today to raise sure. issues that hopefully we'll all keep in mind as we talk about people of color and what we bring to this country and what we have to gain. And I know, Dr. Ida, we're going to need to allow Dr. Follis to clear the line so our next caller can call in. Do you have any lingering questions for her before we do that? I just want to thank her immensely for taking her Saturday to shed some light on our similarities and where we have opportunities to collaborate. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be very, very important as we go forward uh, in the new year that we um, come together on those matters that affect our families and our communities. And um, I'm looking forward to working with you more. Right. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Bye. And we are going to transition now to another person who we believe has some um, very uh, legitimate reasons to want to be called an American. And he should be calling in here shortly. Um, and Dr. I, you know what we should mention, we, we said on our show several weeks ago, but it's worth a mention again, that we are ending a month that's somewhat noteworthy and that first Columbus Day that we used to celebrate in October is now Indigenous Peoples Day. And that's very um, pertinent to what our next guest will talk about. And also, I should have mentioned while Dr. Folis was on the line, that we are also just ending the 30 days that's commonly known as Hispanic Heritage Month. So, again, acknowledgement that we, that, we, that we do have more than one culture in the United States that's worthy of being acknowledged. And, of course, our next guest will talk, as our previous one did, about what our listeners can do, and that's a tone we always try to set on the window, what our listeners not only need to be aware of, but what we can do to attempt to reach out to each other, learn more about each other, see what our areas of differences are, of course, that we need to work on, but a good place to start also our commonalities. Okay. Um, we are going to transition over to our new guest, and... Um, I am going to read his bio. Okay, let me give him the correct phone number. It's 614-824-2336. No, 2139. 2139, my mistake. I am sorry. We're juggling quite a bit this morning. But it's 2139 Sundance. And I'm going to read your bio while I'm straightening things out. Sundance is a father, an uncle, and an educator, and he's from Cleveland, Ohio. He is a member of the Cleveland American Indian Movement's Elders Council and a member of Oberlin Indigenous Peoples Day Committee. Okay, um, just one second, folks. I'm going to send this number to him again. 
2139. He says it's still busy. Joanne, sorry, Dr. Joe, what number are you on? I don't know, but you know what? I'm going to hang up and then I'm going to call back in. Okay, she's going to hang up and call back. I'm sorry, folks. We are juggling. Yep. Any number should work now. <laughs> okay, she's going to hang up and call back. I'm sorry, folks. We are juggling. Okay. He's on? Hello. Sundance. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I apologize for the confusion. We are um, juggling lines and people, and, and I did not want that to happen, but I guess it happened anyway. How are you today? I am. I'm doing okay. How are you? Good, good. Um, Sundance, tell us about your life here in Ohio. How did it begin, and how did you become the advocate that you are? Oh well, well that's a long story. Well, um, just but the, the I, I guess the short version. version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the short version is you know coming to Ohio and um, being discriminated against as uh, an indigenous person really caused me to think about, you know, what was causing the discrimination. And certainly when I had my son, um, I could no longer afford to basically be inured to the discrimination. I mean, I, I would note that we all are discriminated against as people of color to some extent. And the discrimination that we are familiar with is the discrimination often that we are most comfortable with. So I could not uh, um, afford to have my son undergo the same sort of discrimination that was directed toward me. So basically, it was because I became a father. And what were those um, discrimination actions that pushed you to that point? Well, so, you know, living in uh, an environment where there was uh, an Indian mascot, um, many of them in, in Ohio, um, people did not see me as a person oftentimes. And because of perhaps their experience in the school systems or otherwise, where maybe the opposing team was called Indians or Braves or Redskins or whatever, and there being that natural hostility uh, or competition, um, as so often happens between sports teams, people felt that they could um, direct that type of hostility towards me as a, a person, or rather as not a person, because they did not view me as a person. Now help us with the with the alternative terms for Native Americans, um, and certainly this is with all due respect. Um, I see American Indians, I see Native Americans, I see Indigenous Americans. Which term is preferred for your ethnicity? Okay, so I think the first thing that should be said is that 
we are different ethnicities, all of us. And um, the different terms um, will be receptive to different people at different times. Um, so American Indian is a political term that's controlled by the United States federal government. Okay. Uh, and, and it implies um, that the United States federal government has fiduciary responsibility. And it's mostly directed at people who are card carriers, meaning that they they have a certificate of degree Indian blood. And um, it has been used to exclude other Native people from treaty rights uh, that they would otherwise have. And so um, the United States determines politically who can call themselves American Indian and who may not. And how do you uh, refer felt, to yourself? Well, I prefer... Uh, I call myself a, a number of, of different ways, you know, when I want to self-identify in whatever way is comfortable or appropriate at that time. So when I say American Indian, everybody knows who I'm talking about. I when see. I say When I say indigenous, depending on who you are uh, and where you are, people may not understand what that term means. Uh, I typically shy away from the term Native American. I, I don't really... Um, like that term per se. Um, but I also note, you know, that Native people from Alaska and Native people from Hawaii prefer to be called differently, you know, Native Alaskans and Native Hawaiians, respectively. Um, now, Native American is also a political term that was invented by the Kennedy administration to include all Native peoples in quote unquote civil society. This occurred at a time when the federal government were still terminating American Indian nations and relocating those indigenous peoples to urban centers in the contiguous United States, while at the same time continuing to deny Native Alaskans and Native Hawaiians their self-determination. Now, indigenous is an internationally recognized term, which implies a certain ancestral uh, connection to the land that you are on. And it's a term that's understood by indigenous people pretty much all around the world to imply that there is a relationship that they have with what we call Mother Earth and what you may call Mother Nature. Um, my, what I say to people when they ask, you know, what do we call you? Because we are all different ethnicities and we're all different peoples and we all practice our self-identification differently. I typically advise those people to just ask, ask the person who, you know, who you're talking to, how they would like to be referred. I think that's a perfect answer. Um, I have one other question. We're going to take a quick break. Um, what do you believe is the current economic state of indigenous Americans right now? Well, we are the poorest people in the country. You know, we represent about uh, 1% of the population, but at every socioeconomic indicator, we are at the very bottom, with the exception of the, you know, the most detrimental ones, like we are at the top of the list of people who are most likely to be, say, um, assaulted by someone from a different ethnicity. 
or um, we're at the top of the list when it comes to the uh, epidemic of murdered and missing women and girls in our communities. Uh, but in general, you know, we received the poorest education, we received the poorest health care um, on reservations where a small minority of us actually live. Um, many of them are like third world countries. And then when we move into the cities, uh, the urban centers where most of us live, you know, we are typically ghettoized. So um, our economic situation has not improved uh, since we became citizens of the United States um, back in 1924 and has worsened, you know, since contact because we were certainly people who had a vast, you know, trade networks of ideas and and material goods, and we practiced sharing in our cultures so people did not go hungry, um, which at the moment um, we are not doing in this economic environment. And what about COVID? Well, you know, so... Again, we have the worst health care um, of any group in the country, and the diseases that affect us affect us disproportionately. COVID is one of those one of those diseases that affect us disproportionately. Um, we are more likely to have those um, pre-existing conditions that cause so much um, trouble with people who get that disease, and so we are more likely to then be adversely impacted by that disease. Thank you. We are going to take a quick break and come back with Sundance and talk some more about the conditions um, surrounding him on the window. Thank you. We'll be right back. We're back with Sundance, and we're talking about the conditions of indigenous people here in the United States. And Sundance, I'd like to ask you if you can look at um, the the situation surrounding indigenous people and compare it to African Americans and um, Latinx. Is it more similar or more different right now? Well, you know, I think that uh, in general we have had a common oppressor. Our histories have been uh, somewhat different, but the type of oppression that we have faced, basically, you know, white supremacy, has been um, similar. Now, I mean, there there is a a difference between, say, how the um, overarching culture, mainstream culture, has approached, um, say, Native peoples and um, Black people in this country. Uh, with with say African Americans, there is this, I guess, presupposition that black culture is something that can be co-opted with impunity by white America 
And, you know, to, to some extent, that is um, true with white America versus uh, Native cultures. But in a real, um, to a real degree, we are often seen as foreigners in, you know, our traditional homelands, which is um, not something I think that uh, the black community necessarily faces, um, but may be something I think that the um, Latina, Latino community faces to some degree. Now, can you give us uh, an example for maybe those that don't understand the appropriation of culture? Well, so with the appropriation of, of culture in the black community, right, um, I do note that there are not very many radio stations in this country that are owned by African Americans, yet the um, the music that black people have historically enjoyed in this country that has come out of their communities have been claimed uh, by you know white artists as well as you know, radio um, stations as well as labels who have made a profit off of this, uh, off of that music, as well as um, off of the images of, you know, black people in the arts and black people in sports. Now, with, with indigenous people, you know, um, for us, Yes, there are certainly, certainly white people who try to be Native. I mean, I guess the most notable is this sort of new age movement that has been prevalent for the last um, few decades. But uh, in general, you know, we still cannot practice our cultures in public without being seen as quaint or um, exotic. And, you know, the exoticizing of Native culture is really problematic. That treats us as if we do not actually belong here, you know, or come from some other place. And, you know, nothing could be farther uh, from the truth than that. Now, you are the executive director of the Cleveland American Indian Movement. And since March, you've been the co-chair of the Ohio Institute of Communities of Color. Now tell us what those organizations are doing to address some of the inequity and injustice that appear in the Native American or indigenous American communities. Well, so, you know, Cleveland AIM has been around since 1970, and uh, we are the, our, our group um, is the second oldest urban American Indian movement um, organization in the country. And what we have done historically in this area, when 
our group was started, we had two main goals. The first goal was to establish a permanent um, Native cultural center in Cleveland. And the second goal was to get rid of the negative stereotyping of Natives um, in sports through the use of uh, mascots and uh, logos and team names. So half a century uh, later, we are still struggling with that first goal, um, getting a viable um, Native cultural and education center established in uh, Cleveland. Uh, and that second goal, as you know, is hopefully <laughs> coming to fruition here sometime soon. Cleveland Baseball has announced that they um, are moving from the team name Indians, and uh, a year or two ago, they um, also announced that they were getting rid of um, Wahoo, but the issue of uh, the mascots still exists throughout Ohio at the secondary school level, and one could rightly ask, you know, if it's not appropriate now at the professional level, and it hasn't been appropriate for uh 15 years at the collegiate level, why it is still appropriate at the secondary school level. Um, for us, that issue is um, an issue of where our colonizers are dehumanizing us and perpetuating uh, images of us that lead to our continued cultural, spiritual, economic genocide. Um, and so Cleveland AIM has been uh, very forthright in the last, you know, five decades uh, that in order for our issues as Native peoples in this uh, area in this state and, you know, really in this country to be addressed, we have to be seen as people and, and not mascots. Now, the Ohio Institute of Communities of Colors, uh, so this was just established um, back in March, and this is an organization that is comprised of a number of different ethnicities throughout the state. And um, I am hopeful that as we move forward uh, and become a viable organization, that we will be able to foster equity, inclusion, diversity, um, and leadership among our various communities of color in a way that, of course, will benefit not only our communities of color, but, but everyone in Ohio. Dr. Joe, would you like to um, handle the last question before our time is up? I would. I would just like to, um, again, thank our guests and remind our listeners that we never like to close our show without suggesting something that 
you can do if, in fact, you feel compelled to do so after hearing what we've had to say. And so I was moved, Sundance, when you referred to your community as the equivalent of a third world country. And as we have churches and well-intended people who are sending missionaries and, and, and other well-intentioned folks to other countries, I would remind you that here within the United States, there are pockets in your community, I'm sure, of communities that resemble third world countries, whether it's communities of indigenous people or some other cause or group that you feel passionate about. You don't have to go across the globe to say, is there some way I can spend time, money, whatever, getting to understand the needs and, and help us all do better. So Sundance, you are, you are located in Cleveland, Ohio. For our listeners in central Ohio and who might be listening in other states, if they've been moved by something that you said, what is it they can do in their community to try to help? I'm sorry. There's a whole bunch of music going on in the background on this line, and I'm, I did not hear that last question. That's fine. The question was just for well-intentioned people. What can they do to try to help? Well, I mean, I think well-intentioned people can try to help by doing a, a number of things. Some of these things are simply uh, giving Indigenous people a space to to talk. And, you know, other things um, can happen at the personal level or even the community or municipal levels. I mean, uh, I do note that this country that we live in is all native land, and um, most of it is under treaty rights that are certainly not being um, adhered to. And I, I would ask that everyone listening, you know, look at where you live and determine who the Native people were that occupied or controlled that land. Many of us still exist. Reach out to the Native nations, reach out to the Native organizations, uh, reach out to the local Native people in um, your community, because we still exist. Give us a space where we can talk and then listen to what it is that we have to say. All of our experiences are going to be different, and um, all of our needs as differing peoples and communities are going to be somewhat different. The local people are best able to talk about what the local problems are in our communities. Dr. Joe, we have 30 seconds, but I want to jump in here and thank Sundance immensely for coming on today, as well as Dr. Elena. This is very important information to all people of color, and um, I sincerely predict that this won't be our last conversation. Thank you. Thank you for uh, putting up with the technical tr challenges we had today, but um, the content was um wonderful and certainly enlightening so until next saturday uh, we wish you well and we will close on the window have a wonderful day you too thank you for having me